book of Ruth is where we are at tonight. This is sermon number three in my series, in our series. And for the, the sake of continuity and as well as to get you caught up to speed, some of you are here for the very first time tonight, I'd like to briefly recap of what's taken place throughout the first 15 verses of this story. This story was written sometime at or after 1010 B.C. with the coronation of David as king. We know that based on the fourth chapter of Ruth, which acknowledges the Davidic genealogy. And the events in this story, the events that transpired that we're going to study tonight, happened at least 100 years prior to David being coronated as king. The events happened during the days of the judges. This is pre-Israelite monarchy. There are no kings at this time. And while we don't know who the author of this story is, we do know a, a couple important features. For example, the fact that this book is named after one of its main characters, Ruth, is truly remarkable, considering the fact that she was not an Israelite. It is the only book in the entire Old Testament that is named after an Israelite. She is a Moabite, a fact that both the narrator and Boaz, another one of the main characters, emphasize multiple times throughout. When you understand the view that the Israelites had to the Moabites, it makes it even more remarkable. You go back to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. Abraham finds out the Lord is going to destroy that city. He begs the Lord not to because he has family living there. And so God intercedes. He, he saves his nephew Lot, his wife, and their two daughters. Of course, his wife on the way out turns to a pillar of salt. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 19. They're living in a cave. The daughters are, are worried. They're never going to meet a guy. They're never going to get to have kids. They're going to be lonely forever. The oldest daughter comes up with a plan. And the plan is to get their dad drunk, then have sex with their father, and then that, that way they at least get to have kids. So the younger daughter's on board with this. The older daughter does this. She gives birth to a son named Moab. The Israelite perception of the Moabites, like I said, it was rather a slutty view, okay, given the history of the Moabites. So the fact that Ruth... It's not an Israelite, big deal, only book in the Bible named after a non-Israelite, but that she was a Moabite? Wow, remarkable, truly remarkable. And there's a lot of other back story to this of why the Israelites have a, a bad view of the Moabites. I thought I'd give you one of the more egregious ones up front. But the story centers in Bethlehem, which you may remember means... House of bread, right? And the irony of this in the setting is that there's a famine and there is no food in the house of bread, right? This is like saying the Wonder Bread factory had no food, had no bread. And the narrator will use irony throughout this story. And so it sets in Bethlehem, and there's a famine that's plagued the land. And Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, are living there. And Elimelech makes the decision to move his family to Moab. Apparently there's food in Moab. And at first, this doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. There's food there, we're moving our family there. But as we said three weeks ago in the first sermon, the decisions, men, that we make for our families affect way more than just yourself. They affect your wife, who she's going to be friends with. They affect your children. They affect the people you're going to fellowship with. If you're going to be a part of a church, where you're going to be a part of a church? And Elimelech's problem 
is this. He evaluates everything through this economic lens. And that's not a bad thing, but it becomes a problem when that is the only way that you're evaluating things. Through, through what has the larger dollar cent signs. And so Elimelech makes what ends up being a tragic decision to move his family to Moab. They get to Moab, Elimelech dies. Then his two sons, Malon and Kilion, get involved with relationships. They have no business being involved with. Some of you, you're in relationships right now. You have no business being involved in those relationships. And that's what Malon and Kilion do. They marry Moabite wives. No business marrying Moabite wives. They marry the Moabite wives and then Malon and Kilion die. It's tragic. The reason they moved to Moab was so they wouldn't die. Now Naomi has buried her husband and she's buried her sons. There is a little hope. As we saw last week in verse 6, the Lord comes in verse 6, he visits his people, literally he intercedes, he intervenes on behalf of his people. The rains return a sign to his people, I haven't forgotten about you. I haven't. I haven't forgotten about you. Naomi hears that there's now food, once again in Israel, so she She's going back. She's, she's been stuck there in Moab. She's going back. And she and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they, they've gotten really tight. They've been through a lot together. I mean, they've, they've loved and they've buried the people that they've loved. That's got to be a pretty tight bond. But Naomi, as much as she loves her daughters, doesn't want them to come with her. She tells them not to come with her. Don't, don't come with me. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. She doesn't want them to come. She loves them, but she doesn't want them to come because she understands the Israelite view and perception of the Moabites, and she knows it's going to be very challenging for them to integrate socially into this culture. And as we said last week, in the ancient Near East, at this time, it was vitally important for a woman's well-being just to like make it economically to have some type of link, link to another man, be it her father, be it her husband, or if she was widowed, her sons who would take care of her. Vitally important. And so Naomi knows, as much as she loves her daughters, that if they come with her to Bethlehem of Israel, they're not going to fit in. The Israelite perception of the Moabites is very low. They're going to have a hard time integrating socially, let alone finding a husband. Like they've got a better chance of getting struck by lightning than finding a husband. Truthfully, they, they, they do. And she knows that. And she knows that if they stay in Moab, they can meet Moabite boys, get married, and at least be taken care of. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. But for a woman in this culture, a link to another man literally could make the difference between having food to eat and not having food to eat. And so that, that's, as much as Naomi loves them, that's what she's thinking about. And so she's arguing basically from verses 6 to 15, saying, you guys need to leave. Don't you understand? Don't you see this? And they don't want to go. They love their mom. They've been through a ton with their mom. Mother-in-law, mom. She's mom. And so they go back and forth. They're crying. They're upset. She's like, you need to go. They're like, I don't want to go. And finally, Orpah leaves. But Ruth doesn't leave. 
Literally, I think it's uh, verse 13. She's, she's hanging on. She's clinging to her mom, Naomi. Like, I'm not going. Like, I don't want to leave. And then, verse 15, Naomi says, this was the last verse we went through last week. She says, you've got to go back. Orpah has gone back. She's gone back to her people. She's gone back to her gods. You need to as well. And as I said last week, these were rather troubling comments. As, as we as we studied and learned Naomi's life, she's not really the best example of someone who loves Yahweh. She's just not. She she's very surface level Christianity. She's like the Instagram Christian, right? She's got the nice little clever verse thrown up, taking the picture of her doing her devos, but that's about it. She doesn't really know God all that well. Like this girl, she's not super solid. She should probably spend some time reading the Torah learn a little bit more about Yahweh. So she's like, verse 15, her last plea to Ruth, go back, your sister's gone back, she's gone back to her gods. I said this last week, this would be like, if, if Diana, my wife, if she had an Islamic background, I say I die, and my mom says, Diana, you need to go back to your people. You need to go back to Islam, to Allah. Be like, what? Like her comments here, in verse 15, rather troubling. Rather troubling. Rather concerning. And so that's where we pick up today in verse 16. Naomi's been arguing for why Ruth needs to leave, and Ruth won't go. Verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Truth be told, at this point in the story, I think it's fair, if not plausible, to say that Ruth's feelings maybe are a little hurt. Maybe. Like, Mom, stop telling me to go. I don't want to go. I'm not going, Mom. I'm staying with you. Like, stop pressuring me to leave. I get it. I get it, Mom. Naomi, I understand. It's the most natural response for me to go back to Moab. It makes the most economic sense. It makes the most common sense. I I understand what you're saying, but I'm not going. So stop trying to pressure me to leave you. I'm not leaving you. This is radical for her to say this. In any culture. (coughs) Radical. At this point in verse 16, she is, she is abandoning every aspect of security. Even the world we live in today. Huge emphasis on security, right? Savings accounts and large lots and deadbolts and backup plans. The backup plans. This is radical. She's abandoning every aspect of security, every aspect of comfort, everything that's been familiar to her to go with her mother-in-law. And I don't think... That, that Ruth is someone who is naive by any means at all. Okay? 
And at this point in the story, there's a huge contrast between these two characters, between Naomi and Ruth. So Naomi, Naomi, much like her husband Elimelech, she views things in a very black and white, uh, essentially her compass points north to whatever has the largest dollar signs, whatever makes the most economic sense, whatever's the most common sense. She's a very practical person. And, and Ruth is very much not. And I don't think Ruth is like a hopeless romantic. I think it would be an unfair uh, description of her. I think Ruth is someone who is unwaveringly loyal. Someone who is unwavering loyal. And who is an optimistic risk taker. Naomi, black and white, common sense. And then you have Ruth. So loyal. This optimistic risk taker. I I think Ruth fully understands the situation. It's not like she's not getting what Naomi's saying. It's not like she doesn't understand the stakes. That if she goes, if she goes with her mother-in-law Naomi, she might not make it. Huge risk. So this is a very radical statement in verse 16 for her to make this. And she understands, like any person living in the ancient Near East at this time, that if she's going to do this, she's got to be all in. She can't just go like halvesies. We like to go halvesies. As young people, we don't like the whole being super committed. We don't like to commit really to anything. Because there might be something better that comes along. So we don't like to commit to relationships. Something better might come along. We don't like to commit to, you know, any one church. That's why we like to bounce around a lot, see what's out there. And so we just have a very commitment phobia mentality. This girl's all in. She's all in. And she, she understands she, she's gotta be all in if she's gonna go through with this. And so, She tells Naomi, I'm committing myself to you, Naomi, and not just to you, Naomi, but I'm committing myself to your people, Israel, and I'm committing myself to your God, Yahweh. Like, I am all in. I'm not on the fence. I'm not halvesies. I'm in. And and many people at this time, some people would say, isn't this cool? Like, she just got saved. Like, that's awesome. This is a sign of her conversion. And I would caution you to that way of thinking because I think it might be a little premature to say she's converted. Rather, I think we see, especially within the ancient Near East culture, this is, <clears throat> this is a transfer of membership, literally for citizenship from, from Israel to Moab. And with that, she says goodbye to Chemosh, her chief god, and they had many gods, and she embraces the people, and she embraces their way of life, which include their worship of the one true God, Yahweh. But to say this is her conversion, I think it's premature. How much did she actually know about the implications of claiming Yahweh as her deity? I don't know. The text doesn't say. It's a little unclear. She's obviously been observing Naomi's life for more than a decade. We know that much is true. And yet we also know that Naomi really isn't the greatest example of someone who loves God. She's not. She's not exactly qualified to go be a missionary in Moab. And so what happens is, like it like a spiritual emphasis week or youth camp or revival. This is what often happens, right? Week's over and then we come out and first thing they say, right? 45 people got saved. 
45 people got saved. And I'm thinking, how do you, how do you know that? Well, we do it all the time. We do it all the time, right? In this evangelical, papal-like, Vatican way, and we just pronounce people as saved. And I would say, 45 people made a decision to be a Christian. 45 people get saved? I don't know. They made a decision to be a Christian. That's great, like the parable in the sower. What type of soil are they planted in? I don't know. And we know that some is sown among the thorns and the rocks, and at first they receive the gospel with great joy, but never take root. Never take root. I love George Whitfield. I haven't used this quote in like a couple weeks, so it seems appropriate. I use it now. I love this quote. I love this quote. So he preached, George Whitfield preached during the Great Awakening, and uh, he preached to thousands, and people would come and say, Mr. Whitfield, how many people got saved? And he'd say, I don't know. <laughs> Poor guy. He didn't know modern evangelism. Got to keep track of those numbers. <laughs> he'd say, I don't know. And then he'd say, we'll see in a couple months. We'll see in a couple months. And the problem is, say, oh, you know, that's you just apples and oranges. No, I think it's really more than that. It, it really is. We do this. i tell you what, this wasn't something that was done prior to the 1950s. If you read church history, people didn't talk this way. Prior to the 1950s. They do now. But we do this, right? In this evangelical, papal-like, Vatican way, pronounce people as saved. And the problem is, they haven't biblically responded to the gospel. So we send them out the doors, signed, sealed, delivered, when they biblically haven't responded to the gospel, this blood-bought, blood-saturated, life-death resurrection of our Christ, our God and our King. And then they go out with a false sense of security. And nothing in their life has changed Nothing's in their life changed. They made a decision to be a Christian. We're not saved by decisions. We're saved by Christ alone. So, what about the 80 people that get saved at Spiritual Emphasis Week or something? Well, they made a decision. How many are saved? I don't know. It's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a start. And we pray that they would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We pray that they would be planted in good soil. Why? Because that's how the Bible talks. Not to be confused with modern evangelism. This is a good thing. I don't think Ruth is truly converted here, but I think it's a good thing. It's a start. And at this point, the reader can only hope, can only pray that when she actually gets to Bethlehem, that she will meet people. She will meet the type of people who will model to her what it means to truly be a follower of God, who will teach her how to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Because up to this point, she hasn't exactly had that example. Uh, Ruth goes on to invoke the name of God. Invoke, uh, and this is common practice within the ancient Near East, she invokes a divine witness to hold her as a guarantor of this pledge that she is making. That's the summary of what happens in verse 17. Where you die, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. So she's invoking a divine witness to be a guarantor of the pledge and promises she's making. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. At this point, Naomi, who's been running her mouth a whole lot up to this point, 
is speechless. Verse 18, you see this. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Okay? Okay? Verse 19. So the two of them, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She hasn't been back in at least 10 years. Bethlehem's not that big. Stirred the whole town. There, there's excitement. Naomi's back. Levelek's wife? Yes. So everyone is, I can imagine, helter-skelter. They're coming out of their houses. They're coming to greet Naomi. They haven't seen her. Maybe they didn't even know whether she was dead or alive at this point. It's been a decade, at least. And so... Her first response to them, always the cheerful one, she says in verse 20, Do not call me Naomi, which by the way means pleasant. Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. That means bitter. <laughs> For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full. She went away with Elimelech and her two sons, Malon and Kilion. And the Lord has brought me back empty. She's buried them over there. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Like a vacuum, she sucks all the optimism and joy out of the room. Like, I, I just imagine, there I am, I'm like, Naomi, like, don't call me Naomi. Like, how, you haven't seen them in 10 years? Like, this is a little awkward. I'm thinking through this, like, Naomi, hug, high five, whatever. No, first of all, you're not calling me Naomi. Nothing pleasant about what's going on here. <laughs> like, she, I feel like this is like a, like a character made from the office. She knows how to make things awkward. <laughs> this is violating, I think, even social norms within the ancient Near East. And, and she comes back with her faith, but her faith is flawed. And she's still angry. She's still mad at God. Not only that, but she's unable to see human causation in Israel's famine and even her own trials. So she comes back, explains, explains to them that she's decided to change her name, and then continues to whine and tell them how terrible God has been to her. She is right in attributing divine sovereignty to God, but she has this kind of warped, dysfunctional view of who God is. Like, she attributes divine sovereignty to him, and she's right for that. But without emphasizing his grace, his mercy, his kindness, without even acknowledging human causation in her experiences, who moved the family to Moab? Not a trick question. Elimelech moved the family. Elimelech moved the family. Elimelech made this decision. But the first thing out of her mouth is, God's made my life so terrible. He's so terrible. He's treated me so awful. And she doesn't 
in, in, in emphasizing this divine sovereignty of God, she overemphasizes it to such a point that removes human responsibility. It was Elimelech that moved the family. She, she overemphasizes divine sovereignty to such an extent that she removes human responsibility and human causation. Like a guy who comes to me and says, Hey, Joe, so I need to talk to you. Okay, what's going on? So, my girlfriend's pregnant. Okay. Um, how do you feel? Well, I feel mad. How could God let this happen? <laughs> Hang on a second. Let me just get this straight. Um, you're dating a girl. Yep. And having sex. That's right. Not married. Uh-huh. She's pregnant. Yep. And you're mad at God. That's right. Okay, just want to make sure there was any more stupid that got left out. She overemphasizes the sovereignty of God to such a point that she removes human responsibility and human causation in Israel's famine, let alone her own situation. I've been really hard on Naomi throughout this series. Tonight is no exception. She's going through a lot, guys. I understand that. I mean, I don't understand that. I've never had to bury a spouse. I've never had to, to bury my children. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be upset. The problem is, is she has this dysfunctional view of who God is. That's why I said I really, she needs to open the Bible and read. She doesn't know. So she's really just, her picture of God is just based on how she's feeling, not based on what the scriptures actually say. And we have to be very careful that we don't do that. That we let the pages of this book define who God is, not how we feel in the moment. So her faith, yes, it's still there, barely. It's flawed. And she's still angry. And she's still mad. And she's still upset. And I'm thinking through this little conversation, verse 20 and 21. She's having this first time in town. Ruth's with her. She's having this conversation. It's awkward. I'm thinking, what is Ruth thinking the whole time? She's there. Like, here's a girl, woman, young lady, who in verse 16 just made a pledge, your people will be my people, your God, my God. And if I'm Ruth, I'm thinking, this Yahweh character doesn't really sound a whole lot better to me. Like, Kimosh, the chief god of the Moabites, he, I don't know. Like, what is Ruth supposed to think? Or maybe, she, maybe she's just like, oh, well, this is, this is normal Naomi. I mean, this isn't the first outburst she had. She had an outburst in verse 13 where she let it know, where she let it be known just how she felt, how God had treated her unfairly. So maybe Ruth is standing there being like, oh, that's just Naomi. Oh, yeah, God, God mistreating her. Yeah, that's what she's come to know to expect. Like, Ruth has no other example as far as we know than Naomi. And what a terrible example she is. If I'm Ruth, I'm thinking, eh, maybe things were better with Kimosh, not Yahweh. It's the spring of 2010. It's March, spring break. And so I go to Daytona Beach for the glory of God and the joy of all men <laughs> with some friends of mine for spring break. Still remember this. Go down to the lobby. I, I was a second, that was 2010 spring, so I would have been in my uh, second semester of seminary. And I'm, I had to go to the lobby because that's where they had internet. And so I'm down there sitting on a couch in like a common area and I'm uploading an assignment that I had done for a class. And there's a guy next to me. You know, we had been praying, my buddies and I, 
uh, that we would have opportunities to be intentional, to share the gospel, to, to be the type of example that we ought to be, that Jesus commands us to be. And so I'm, I'm sitting there, and this guy, Josh, he sits next to me, and he's explaining why he's sitting there. And he had been at the club the night before. He met a girl and was hoping to see if she had accepted his friend request because he was hoping that before he left for spring break, they could hook up and have sex. At which point I say, thank you, Lord, for bringing this pagan sinner to me because I definitely know he's not a Christian. I can share the gospel with him. That's what's going through my mind. We start talking, Josh and me. And he finds out why I'm there, why I'm sitting there. And he says, oh, you're a Christian? Cool, me too. When people tell you they're a Christian, just ask them why they think they're a Christian. Okay, That's just not part of the sermon. Just do that. If they tell you they're a Christian, always ask why. Why do you think you're a Christian? be surprised the answers you get, most of them are which are not biblical. And so Josh tells me that he's a Christian too, that his dad's a pastor. Fast forward the conversation, I say, Josh, I've got to be honest with you. Had I not been a Christian, I would have thought that you're just like everybody else. How do you think God feels about the type of example that you are? He didn't have much to say. Truth be told, that was accurate. If I, if I wasn't a Christian, like if, if, I'm, if I'm Ruth and I'm there and I'm seeing this out of Naomi, really the only example I have, I'm thinking there's no difference between Yahweh and Kimosh. There's no really difference between the people of God and the people who are not of God. As I told Josh, I would have thought you were just like anybody else. There's nothing to this Christianity thing. So I'm curious. What type of example are you to people? Are you like her? Some of you say, well, I'm not, I'm not like her. And I don't really have the opportunity to be that type of example because I don't have a Moabite daughter-in-law. Okay, okay, you're not, whatever. There's always one person, so I thought I'd just say that right now so no one said it out loud and looked even more foolish. Some people are like, oh, well, I'm just not. I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm, I'm not really any example. You should be. Jesus, after he did this little tiny feat called raising from the dead, in Matthew 28, he gives the Great Commission, right? He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things that I taught you. And I wonder, how many of us are actually doing that? How many of us would say that we're actually intentionally pursuing relationships and people saved, not saved, maybe, I don't know, and discipling them? and pouring into them, and loving them, and correcting them, and teaching them. Like, how many of you are, are doing that? So that's the example that we have, that we're told to do, and so many of us don't. We just float. We drift. I don't think you can truly love people well if you're not making disciples. I don't. Naomi loves Ruth, that's clear. 
but she doesn't love her well. She's a sorry excuse. And it's no wonder, as I said last week, if Naomi was the example of the highest level of faith in Israel, it's no wonder this famine has come to the land. No surprise there that God brought this. I mean, if she is supposed to be what right looks like, are you like her? See, the other problem that Naomi runs into is And I tell this oftentimes to people who are in relationships. They say, how can I best love my significant other? I say, love God. You want to love them well? You cannot love the person in a relationship with you if you don't love God well. You can't love them well if you don't love God well. And she comes back with her faith, but she's angry at God. She's mad at God. There are things with her and God that need to be worked out that haven't been worked out. And quite frankly, I'm not sure if she wants to work them out. She's, she shows up here. The fact that she's in Bethlehem is why. Verse 6, God comes and visits his people. He comes to the aid of his people. He comes and intervenes on behalf of his people. The fact that she's in Bethlehem here in verses 20 and 21 is a miracle of God's faithfulness. But she doesn't want to acknowledge that. She just wants to acknowledge about how terrible and bitter God has treated her and made her life. As, as far as I'm concerned, she is the original Eeyore. You know, Winnie the Pooh. Tigger, Christopher Robbins. It's her. She's Eeyore. She wants to be mad. She wants to be angry. She wants to be upset. There's things she could be thankful for. Nope, not going to do it. Because I'm pissed at God. She loves Ruth, but she can't love her well as long as there's crap between her and God. That's a fact. You can't love people well, unless you love God well. You can't love God well if you don't really know much about God. Also another one of her problems. She doesn't really know that much about God. She has a dysfunctional, warped view of Him. That's one of the reasons I read my Bible, so I can know more about God. But more to the point, she's got garbage and crap between her and the Lord, and she hasn't let it go. More to the point, I'm not so sure she wants to. She'd rather just go around like Eeyore, Telling people how bitter God has made her. How she's just got dealt this terrible hand. Let me be really clear. You can't love people well unless you love God well. And when it comes to loving and serving God, it matters how you do that. Psalms 100 verse 2 tells us, serve the Lord with gladness. Did you know that God actually threatens terrible things? He, he threatens terrible things to happen to his people if they don't serve and love him the right way. Did you know that? Scary thought. He threatens terrible things upon his people if they don't serve and love him the right way. Or have you not heard that it was said? Moses said this. Deuteronomy 28 47 to 48. Have you not heard that it was said, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, you didn't serve and love Him the right way, because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, 
You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Naomi, you better be careful. I got it. Some of you sitting here, you're like, you don't understand. I know, I don't. You don't understand, Joe. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the type of pain that I've experienced. You don't know the things that, like, nobody else knows. And you just hold on to that anger. You hold on to that bitterness. You don't want to let it go, quite frankly. For some reason or another, you'd rather just be like Eeyore. So you say, what am I supposed to do, Joe? Am I just supposed to fake it till I make it? No, you're not supposed to fake it till you make it. You do what the psalmist did in Psalms 51.12. In Psalms 51.12, the psalmist prays, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because it's gone and I don't feel it. I don't want to feel it, but all I feel is crap and anger and bitterness and things, things I shouldn't feel, things I don't want to feel. Things that Naomi feels. And I don't want to, God. And God, like, unless you come, unless you do this, unless you restore to me the joy of your salvation, I'm not going to feel any other way. And I'm tired of drifting week after week, day after day. I'm tired of being like Naomi. And I don't want that in my life. I don't want that to happen. Do you fight like that? Do you pray like that? You should. You're not going to be able to love people well if you can't love God well. You're not going to be able to love God well as long as there's crap between you and him going on that you've never dealt with, that you've never let go of. And more to the point, he threatens terrible things on those of us who don't love and serve him well. So this is what I'd like to do right now. I'd like the band to come up here. And I'd like to pray for you. In a moment, we're having communion tonight. We do communionally a little bit differently at Lynchburg City Church. It doesn't matter whether or not you're a member at Lynchburg City Church. If you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as both Savior and bowed to Him as King and Lord, we invite you to come and take the juice and the bread, to take the elements with us when you're ready. But if you've got stuff that you need to deal with, don't come back there until you've dealt with it. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 that doing so resulted in God killing people because they took communion in an unworthy manner. So you sit there as long as you need. Pastor Dane and I will be in the back. And when you're ready, you come. God, we love you. We love you, Lord. You're a good God. You're a great God. And I need you to do some miracles tonight. I imagine there, there's at least one person, if not many, in here who just, like Naomi, don't know you well, 
and thus can't love you well, can't love others well, can't love others well because they've got garbage with you and them and they don't want to feel anger towards you. They don't want to feel hatred and bitterness and all types of nasty things, but they do. If they're being honest, they do. And God, unless you come here, unless you do a miracle in their lives, that's all they're going to know. And so I pray that you would free people tonight, that, that you would do what the psalmist begged you to do, that you would restore in us the joy of your salvation because we want to feel joy towards you. We want to serve you with gladness. Not begrudgingly, not, not as we try to suppress this anger and all these other filthy emotions. I, I pray you'd cleanse us from those things, that you'd free us from those things, God. That you'd do only what you and you alone can do. And I know I'm asking for a miracle. But I figure you're the right one to ask as Elimelech's name declares, Our God is King. So please help. Help us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen.